Thanks, band. Good morning again uh, to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad that you chose to join us uh, this morning. Right now, as a church, we are preaching through the book of Acts, which is a New Testament book. So if you're new to the Bible or new to the book of Acts, uh, Acts is historical theology. So it's, it's written as narrative, telling us the events that happened after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. So at this uh, time in history, what's going on, Jesus is in heaven, ruling and reigning uh, at the right hand of God the Father. He has sent his church, or has sent his Holy Spirit, into uh, his followers. And as the, the subheading of our sermon series says, the church is born. So he sends his Holy Spirit, fills his people, and uh, the church is exploding and, and spreading all over the place. At the beginning of the book, we saw the gospel being spread via persecution. So uh, there was thousands of Christians in Jerusalem, and then persecution broke out, and so those Christians went back to their homelands, to their nations, to their cities, and so the gospel spread that way. But now uh, we're seeing the gospel being spread through uh, missionaries being sent, through uh, leaders in the church going to different locations, preaching the gospel, planting churches, etc. And so this morning we're going to look at chapter 14, a big chunk of uh, chapter 14, and this morning's title is The Gospel of Grace Divides. So we're going to see this idea of grace and how the good news of God's grace towards us is actually, it is good news, but it actually divides. It divides cities, it divides families, it divides friends, and we're going to see that play out today. So if you want to follow along, you can uh, open up your Bibles or grab a, a pew Bible in front of you, or the passage will be um, on the screen behind me. We're going to read uh, chapter 14, the first 18 verses. Now at Iconium, uh, they, speaking of Paul and Barnabas, together, or entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers and sisters. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lysonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of that city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowd. But when the apostles uh, Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, what are you doing? These, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. It's a crazy passage. Uh, a lot of similarities to what we've seen again and again so far on Paul's church planning journey, yet also some pretty unique uh, stuff to, uh, so far here in Acts. So if you've been around here for the past few weeks, you maybe remember this, but so Paul and Barnabas were sent out of Antioch, so not Jerusalem. They're sent out of this different city in Syria, and they've made their journey up here through, which is modern-day Turkey. And so this week they are in Iconium and then down to Lystra and Derby. So that's 
where they've been going so far. As you can probably see from the map there, after Derby, they're going to come home, and uh, then they'll be sent for another uh, church planning and, and uh, missionary journey. But today we see especially uh, 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 events, especially at these two cities, Iconium and Lystra. So let's look and see what happened at those. First, in the city of Iconium. So like Paul has done in every other city prior to this, he starts by going to the synagogue. So he goes to a new city, new cultural center, and he goes to where the Jewish people are gathering and have a service and have a, a spot in that service for, for rabbis, for teachers to stand up and share something. So he goes to the synagogue, he preaches, and just like we've seen in every other city as well, many people believe, both Greeks and Jews. And along uh, with that, we see signs and wonders, so some type of miraculous uh, things happening. Um, and what these signs and wonders do, here it's described as they give credibility or they support or they validate this gospel that is being preached. So in verse 3 we read, uh, So Paul and Barnabas remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace. How did he bear witness to this grace that's being preached? By granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So the Holy Spirit's empowering of Paul and Barnabas to do these miracles is proving and giving support and validation that what these guys are saying really is true. They're doing stuff that only God can do. And so it gives validation to the words that they are saying. It proves that this gospel that they're preaching is true, which is very important uh, in that way as well. But if you even more so if you think about who this audience is. Most of them are Jews. And even if you don't know much about the Jewish religion or the Old Testament, you know a few things like you should not worship a human being and things like you should worship on the Sabbath and there's sacrificial and purity and dietary restrictions all under the Jewish law. And so when the gospel is being preached to a Jewish context, they are having to go against many, many, many different cultural things and laws and essentially, if they're wrong, they're risking their eternal souls, right? And so it's really important before that the Bible is constructed, right? They don't have the Bible yet. It's just happening right now. Uh, we don't have the New Testament uh, yet. Um, Paul hasn't written his letters, and Acts is just kind of playing out uh, right now. So it's, it's just really important that there are signs and miracles and wonders and healings being done to show that this is not just false teachers, this is not just someone worthy of uh, getting thrown in jail or, or being denounced as a false teacher, but that God is actually behind this. And we're seeing this again and again, and we'll see it throughout Acts. But despite these signs and wonders, despite miracles happening and this great good news being preached and many converting, both Greeks and Jews believing, the people were still divided. This happens uh, throughout Acts. We've seen it. Uh, so far in every other city they've gone to, but we see that the people were divided. The city was divided. The synagogue, this uh, faith gathering, this group of people, they were divided. And in, in here, Luke even describes it as there's opposition against the brothers and sisters, which Luke could have said there was opposition against the church, which is true, or he could have said there's opposition against the Christians, also true, or about the, the disciples of Jesus, but instead, he chooses here to use these words intentionally. He says there's opposition against the brothers and sisters, which is a New Testament way of describing the church. The church is a spiritual family. God is our father, our adopted father. We're adopted into his family, and now we are a large, extended spiritual family. And so now the first allegiance and the first identity of all these people in this church in Iconium and as well as all these churches that they're planning, their first allegiance and identity is no longer ethnic, no longer uh, national, no longer their socioeconomic status or their gender or their power or their wealth. Now their first allegiance, their first identity is being a son or daughter of God. And now a part of this crazy mixed family that's full of all different ethnicities and nationalities and life stages and socioeconomic levels and genders. This new huge mix that's now called the family of God, a group of people that nowhere else in the world would have gotten together 
and gathered and be unified. And so this new identity that Christians are now brothers and sisters with each other, this was life-altering. And it's countercultural for us, and it's especially countercultural for these people entering the early church. So now in Christ, now through the gospel, people are seeing each other differently. So in the ancient world, and similarly to us, but even more so in the ancient world, they're not seeing other people as enemies. They're not looking at each other and saying, you're a Roman, you're the occupier, you're the oppressor of my people, or you're the Jews and you're the one that are fighting against Roman rule. Now they're no longer seen as enemies, but as brothers and sisters. No longer are they seeing each other as competition. Competition for jobs, competition for power, competition for financial gain, or, or spouses, or whatever it might be, but rather brother and sister. They're not seeing each other as subhuman, as, as many in this culture would have seen people like slaves and bond servants and people of other ethnicities or nationalities. And nor are they seeing each other as sexual objects anymore, which in the ancient Roman and Greek culture was huge, right? There was temple prostitutes, there were slaves, and uh, the Roman world and the, the Greek mindset just um, valued women really, really lowly. But now, in the church, people are seeing each other completely differently. They're seeing each other as equals, as brothers and sisters in the faith. So this has huge implications for them as well as for us. It changes our allegiance. It changes our responsibility. Now as Christians, who are we most committed to? Who do we most feel responsible for? Who are we most aligned with? It's our church family. It's our brothers and sisters in Christ. Even more than our ethnicity, or our nationality, or our gender, or our neighborhood, or our friend group, or our extended family. We have a new eternal family that unlike our biological families that for many of us have hurt us or abandoned us or disowned us or, or just maybe not that bad, but maybe now because we're Christians, they just don't like us that much anymore. We don't have, maybe you don't have as much fun with your uh, siblings now that you're a believer, now that you value Jesus so much. Or maybe your uh, parents or extended family are just not very proud of you. Or they're kind of annoyed with how you don't go to family events or how you always gather with Christians instead of them on Sunday mornings. We actually hear this story all the time about how Christians are uh, being let down, being left, not respected or loved by their family anymore. And relatedly, that was happening in the early church as well. We're seeing this over and over and over again. And so now we've been given this new eternal spiritual family that won't leave us, won't abandon us, cannot be taken away from us, and that is the physical embodiment of Jesus' love towards us in a tangible, uh, regular type of way. And even though in Iconium many believed they saw these signs and wonders and it led both Jews and Greeks to believe, to convert, to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. We also see that there was fierce opposition against the brothers and sisters. There's this persecution that led to uh, death threats, led to, it's so dangerous, Paul and Barnabas, that you just can't stay. You want to stay and you've chosen to stay longer than maybe you had planned, but now the Jews and the Gentiles are trying to kill you. They're going to stone you. And so they leave. But even as they leave, they are preaching the gospel. They continue to preach the same message that is getting them death threats. And they move on to this next city. So they head on to another city named Lystra. And something similar, but also some very different stuff happened in this new city. This city does not have a synagogue. There's not enough Jewish people for there to be a synagogue there. So Paul and Barnabas are preaching in the open air. There happens to be a guy there that's lame from birth. He can't walk. And the Holy Spirit does something where Paul's able to see this guy and see that he's having, that he has faith. And so Paul speaks to them and does another sign and wonder. He heals this guy who cannot walk. He looks him in the eyes and says, stand up and walk. You're healed. But this time, rather than this sign and wonder, this healing leading to giving support to the gospel and many believing, in this city, the healing actually led towards the crowds thinking that they were gods, thinking that they were actually Zeus 
and Hermes, two ancient Greek gods, which is pretty weird, right? Just weird, first of all, that we've never seen this happen before. We've seen Paul and Barnabas go to many cities, but this has never happened before, as well as just kind of weird, like they think they're gods, what's going on? That's just kind of strange for us. And so we're probably wondering what's, what's going on here, why the difference between the two stories and the two cities. Well, a few things probably culturally or context-wise are happening here. So like I said, there's no synagogue in this city because there's not enough Jewish people. So he's not going and speaking primarily to a Jewish audience that would have at least known and believed the Old Testament. But also, this crowd is just very uh, superstitious and they believe in a, a pantheon of gods. And so probably what was going on, we know from ancient literature, there's an ancient Latin poet that wrote about this legend that happened. So this is probably what they are thinking. So in context, there's this story about Zeus and Hermes, ancient uh, Greek um, gods that came to this particular city looking for lodging. And they go from house to house to house, and everyone rejects them over and over again. And then they finally come to this, this shack that's owned by this poor elderly couple, and they let these two men in. And after giving them a lavish feast, showing them great hospitality, they reveal themselves to this elderly couple to show that we're not just two guys, we're actually the, the gods, Zeus and Hermes. And so they take their uh, little hut, their little shack here, and transform it into a temple for Zeus. And then they go out to the city that has uh, treated them so poorly, and they destroy it with a flood. So it seems like just understanding the context of what this city was all about, them having, we saw in the passage, there's an actual temple to Zeus in their city. It seems like what's going on is that the people of Lystra is they're trying to learn from their lesson from before and save their own skin. They're forcing worship onto these people, onto these apostles who are trying to reject it, hoping that judgment won't come towards them. So it helps us kind of understand why are they forcing it even when Paul and Barnabas are like, Guys, we're just hu we're humans, just like you. Stop worshiping us. And in contrast to Herod, which we learned about uh, a few weeks ago, who loved being called a god, who loved receiving the praise of humans and loved being worshipped as a god, Paul and Barnabas immediately tear their clothes in disgust. Immediately they say, we, we are not gods, we are humans. We are made in flesh just like you. Stop worshiping us. And out of there, they preached another sermon to this pagan crowd. And their sermon talks about re uh, repentance, turning from these false dead gods to believing in the one true God. And again, in both of these cities, we see that the gospel is both gloriously received by many as well as violently rejected. We see that the gospel of grace, gospel means good news, the good news of God's grace towards humanity through his son, Jesus Christ, divides. It divides cities, it divides synagogues, it divides families and communities. We've seen this over and over again in Acts. We're going to see it again today, and we'll continue to see it going forward. But many of us think, and this is uh, common to think, I've thought this before, we think if the gospel is just shared, then many will believe, right? The problem is that people just haven't ever heard it. And while that's partly true, people do need to hear the gospel in order to believe. That statement is not true fully. Or maybe we just said, if the gospel is presented correctly. So the big problem is myself and my friends and my church, we're just not sharing the gospel persuasively enough or we're doing it wrong, or we're saying the wrong words, or have the wrong motives. But if it was presented correctly, then people would receive it. So that's the problem. It's not that they didn't just hear it, but that we're doing it wrong. Or maybe just a common opinion today is, just even more broadly, if everyone just heard about Jesus' love, there would be peace, right? But the problem with that, even though it sounds great, and maybe we want to believe it or have believed it, is that it's just not true. We've seen this in Acts as well as Jesus and his own teachings. Uh, in Luke 2, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he predicts, he says, this is what's going to happen in my ministry. That my life, my ministry, is going to bring, bring about the, the rising 
and the fall of many in Israel. My ministry is going to have some people flourish and other people fall. And even though Jesus is called the Prince of Peace at his birth, that Prince of Peace, especially talking about the now peace that we can have between us and our Creator, a, a vertical type of peace, we can now be reconciled to God, we can uh, no longer be at war with Him, but we can have peace. But besides that, in Jesus' ministry, talking about human relationship, horizontal, interpersonal relationships, look at what Jesus says. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Some of you are thinking, oh, I can believe that part. That makes sense. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Ouch, Jesus. Right? Like, really sounds like bad news. Really? You say that I'm going to lose my loved ones? I'm going to lose my biological family? Yet, this is many of our stories here at Hiawatha Church. Family has left us or abandoned us or doesn't care about us that much anymore or is disappointed in us. Many of us have lost relationships with parents, siblings, children, and even extended family because of our faith, because of our allegiance to Jesus, because of our value with gathering with Jesus' body on a regular basis. But even though Jesus gives us some really tough news here, true but hard to swallow, although the gospel will divide, he promises, we're also promised that it'll be worth it. Jesus says it will be worth it, all this loss, for two reasons. One, because he will give us eternal life. And two, because even now there's consolation because he's going to give us a new and even greater extended spiritual family. He says this in Mark. Jesus says uh, in response to Peter. So Peter, his disciple, says to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. And then Jesus responds, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. So it's not just heaven. It's not just an eternal uh, goodness, but life is really hard now. It is that, but it's even more. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. And persecution, he says. And in the age to come, we also will receive eternal life. So Jesus promises disciples, you will receive persecution, right? Not just new uh, spiritual siblings and children and mothers and homes and land, but you will receive persecution as well, but you won't be alone. You're not going to have to go through it alone. In Jesus' church, we'll receive many more brothers and sisters and children and spiritual mothers and homes into this new family that we've been adopted into. So even though there's a very real reality of grief and loss and suffering and pain as we lose biological family, that's very true. And at the same time, we're promised that we won't be alone in this life. And not just in this life, but the division and the loss and the suffering that we receive now will be worth it as we receive eternal life with our Savior, in paradise, along with our new spiritual family. But some of you, maybe during this whole time, you're asking, you're wondering, but why does the gospel divide? Doesn't gospel mean good news? How can good news actually be bad news to people and divide? Isn't grace a good thing? But even when shared perfectly, the gospel of grace, the good news of grace that comes to us through Jesus, his perfect life, his death on our behalf, his victorious resurrection and ascension, 
that gospel of grace will divide. By definition, grace means unmerited favor. It tells people that the good that they receive, by definition, is not earned. It's given. It's a gift. So for those of us who know that we're a mess, for those of us who know we're broken and sick and hurting and imperfect, those of us who want a Savior, those of us who want a rescuer, this gospel of grace is such good news. It's the best news we've ever heard. But for those of us that think that God should be impressed with us, those of us who put all of our stock and weight in our resume, for those of us who have a high view of ourselves, or those of us who kind of like having power and control and independence, for them, grace is an offensive thing. We saw that the crowds, they weren't just apathetic to Paul and Barnabas. They weren't kind of like, hey, that's great for you. It's true for you. You do your own thing. But we saw that they were poisoning people's minds against the brothers and sisters. They were preaching anti-gospels. This gospel of grace was not just neutral. They weren't just apathetic towards it. It either was great news or it was condemning horrible news. And they argued against it. They preached anti-gospels. The gospel of grace was bad news, and they fought against it. Kevin DeYoung writes about this. He says, A bad reaction to the gospel does not mean it has been misunderstood. In fact, it can be a sign that the true gospel has been heard. And even though this is true, and this will happen, and Jesus promised that it will happen, we don't want this to happen, right? So we're not saying we don't care when people reject it. We're not saying it's not bad or hurtful or harmful or sad when people do reject the gospel. It definitely is. And our hearts break. And we ask that God would, would, would save more and that there would be less division. But when the division happens, we cannot be hopeless. We know that it's coming and it can, we can at least understand it as, as normal. What's kind of crazy is this type of division, persecution, opposition, and even plans of being murdered, Paul talks about this. He actually, he, he writes back to a guy named Timothy, a, a pastor that Paul has trained and that loves like a son. He writes back to this guy, Timothy, who's actually from Lystra, and Paul writes to him and he says, let me tell you about my experience in these cities. So the past few weeks, what we've been reading about in his first missionary church planting journey Paul says, all this division and persecution and opposition and threats against my life, he calls them normal. He said, that's, that's the Christian life, Timothy. Get used to it. Tell the people in your church, this is what the Christian life is about. Expect it. It's going to happen. He writes back to Timothy and he says, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So kind of bad news, good news, right? Bad news, if you're a Christian here today, this is our reality. This is our future. But the good news is, just like Paul did, or just like God did for Paul here, the Lord will rescue us. He will be there through persecution, through suffering, We'll have a spiritual family surrounding us as we go through abandonment and, and uh, opposition from our biological families. So even though it is hard and real, the suffering is genuine and sad, we have hope. Christians go through this persecution differently than those who don't have this hope. So back to our city. So the city is in a frenzy. People trying to force worship and sacrifice onto Paul and Barnabas because they're hoping they're not going to get destroyed by Zeus and Hermes flooding the city and killing everyone again. And while they're doing this, what's Paul and Barnabas's response? They freak out. They tear their clothes. They say, guys, we are humans. We have, we have the same nature of you. We are just men. Stop worshiping us. And right after they say that, they give this impassioned sermon to these pagans who are trying to worship them as Greek gods. 
And Paul's sermon to them is he argues that the living God, the one true God, is greater than who they think Paul and Barnabas are. Paul begins by calling them to repent, by turning from worshiping these false gods to the one true God, the living God who's powerful and real. Verse 15, he says, We bring you good news, and this is the good news, that you should turn from worshiping something fake, something not real, something that is dead. Turn from that and worship a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul is essentially arguing the things that you think are God's, the God, our God, the one true living God, created those gods. So just like many times in the Old Testament, we see God and his people speak to the other nations and say, you worship the sun, you worship the land, you worship the harvest, you worship animals, you worship humans as deities. Well, guess what? Our God made your lowercase g gods. Just like that happened throughout the Bible and the Old Testament and even some in the New Testament with Caesar being worshipped as God, we see Paul doing the same thing with his audience here. And like we've been seeing over and over again, Paul, he knows his audience well. He knows who he's speaking to. He knows what their values are, what their problems are, what they need. And so what Paul does is he realizes this is a, a polytheistic group. These people worship a pantheon of gods. So if I start off by just saying, hey, Jesus is God. Jesus did miracles. Jesus was raised from the dead. They would say, okay, we'll also worship Jesus. We'll add him to the pantheon of gods. If Paul would do that, they would see Jesus as just one of many gods. But instead, what Paul does, he deconstructs their deities. He deconstructs their dead, empty idols, gods, showing that the one true God is living and their gods are just dead. And not only is the one true God living, in contrast to their dead, impotent, powerless gods, but the one true God has been good and gracious and kind with all of humanity, including them. The God of the Bible is not just good and gracious and kind to Jewish people or to people that believe in him, but that this God, the one true God, is gracious and kind to all of humanity. This doctrine which we call common grace. Common grace says God gives innumerable blessings, countless blessings to all of humanity, but not related to salvation. So common grace does not say everyone is saved, but rather that God loves everyone and God blesses everyone. And even the unjust, even the evil, still receives some good gifts in this life. As soon as we sin, we're not completely killed. The sun raises and the rain falls on both the just and the unjust, God says. So Paul argues that unlike Zeus and Hermes, or any other Greek god that demands obedience and sacrifice in order to receive blessing, demands sacrifice and obedience in order to receive a good crop or rain to fall or happiness or fertility. Unlike the fake gods, the one true God gives good gifts and blessings to all humanity out of his generous, benevolent character. Verse 17, Paul tells them, he says, for God did good by giving you rains from heaven. That was God who did it. And fruitful seasons, that was God who did it. Not Zeus, not Hermes, not Dionysus. It was God. And not only did he do that, but he even satisfied your hearts. He gave you happiness and gladness, even when you weren't worshiping him. This doctrine of common grace, of God's good blessings falling on all of humanity, both those who worship him and those who deny him, it's all over the Bible. Jesus says it. In Matthew 5, he says, Your Father in heaven makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And common grace is throughout the Old Testament as well. Psalm 145 tells us, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. And Paul argues it is out of this truth, this truth that the one true God 
does bless all, does love all. It is out of this truth, Paul argues, that humanity is left without excuse for not believing. He says, in past generations, there we go. He says, in past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet, he did not leave them without witness. So what was this witness? What was this witness that God gave all the nations throughout time that he exists and that he's good and that he loves them? This is the witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul calls this common grace, God's generous and patient and tangible blessings, calls this a witness that all of humanity has experienced. We're going to see Paul unpack this idea a lot in a few chapters. He's in another Greek city uh, in Athens, actually speaking to another group of pagan people that's, that's uh, worshiping a pantheon of God. So we'll see this idea unpacked even more in a few weeks in Acts 17. Before this morning, we're going to look at one of Paul's letters. So Paul writes letters to a bunch of these churches that he's starting. This letter, the book of Romans, he's writing to Roman Christians. And he's unpacking the same idea. And he's using lots of the same language that we see here in Acts 14. So in Romans 1, we're going to read about, look and see how Paul unpacks the how and the why God patiently allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. To use the same language from Acts 14. How did God do this and why did he do it? Why did he let humanity walk in their own ways? Let's read Romans 1. Verses 18 through 23. It starts off by saying this, But the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, plain to all humanity, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So humanity is without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to them, but they came uh, futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul argues, and that's our experience as well as world history, throughout humanity's existence, we've known that there is something transcendent. There's something divine. That there's an eternal power. We humans have been confident when we look out at the world and up at the sky and in our own hearts, we have been confident that there was some type of divine power behind creation. We believe this for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And despite common opinion, the world is actually getting more religious. You might say, well, that's just foolish people that lived in a, a backwards time. They're just barbarians. They weren't enlightened yet. But the reality is, sociologists say, is that the world is actually getting more religious. So the same stuff that Paul's been saying, humanity just can't get around the idea that there must be something. I don't know what it is, I don't know if it's Jesus Christ or if it's Buddha or if it's Zeus, but hum humanity in general cannot get beyond this idea that there has to be something out there. The reality is the world is actually getting more religious. Rebecca McLaughlin writes, at a global level, not only has religion failed to decline, but sociologists are now predicting an increase increasingly religious world. You want to know the only demographic where religion is going down? White, affluent men. The rest of the world, religion is increasing. And this includes Christianity and Islam, that they'll continue to grow. The, the latest study by Pew Research that she's quoting here says that until 2060, Christianity and Islam will both continue to grow. And in the next four decades, atheism, agnosticism, and those who have no religion will decline over the next four decades. So here, this is not saying that everyone is going to come to Christ, but this is saying what Paul is arguing in Romans 1 
And what Paul says to this uh, group of people in Lystra, humanity just cannot get beyond this, this created desire to worship something and this understanding that there must be more out there and that there is some type of divine. But even though that's true, even though that's in our hearts, in our minds, in our DNA, that we cannot run from it, we don't embrace it because of our sinful hearts and our rebellious nature. We have exchanged, to quote Romans 1, we have exchanged the truth for a lie. And we're worshiping creation rather than creator. Romans 1 language says, we exchange the glory of an immortal God. What a beautiful, powerful, worshipful thing. We've exchanged that for images of mortal man and creeping things and bugs and animals. How lame. We now worship things regard, er, resembling mortal man. We now worship things that look like us because of our sinful hearts. Whether it's Zeus and Hermes a couple thousand years ago, or whether it's Beyonce and Brad Pitt, Tom Brady or Kylie Jenner, we're designed to worship. We can't help it. So either we'll worship creation and things that look like us, or we'll worship the Creator. Now remember how this passage started in Romans 1. It starts off, big scary words, for the wrath of God has come against humanity. So what is God's wrath? What is God's punishment for our rebellion against him? What is God's wrath against evil humanity that suppresses the truth that he gives us and rather would have a lie, would rather worship ourselves than the one we were created to worship? What is God's wrath? Is it a lightning bolt and fire coming down from heaven like Zeus? Is it the ground opening up and swallowing all the rebellious? What is God's wrath against humanity from Romans 1? Verse 24 tells us, what is the wrath of God against humanity? Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. God's punishment against humanity for worshiping creation rather than him. God's wrath against humanity for exchanging the truth for a lie. His wrath is okay. His wrath is, all right, I'll let you have what you want. You think your lust and your desires and following a lie and worshiping creation is going to be fulfilling? It's not, but okay. I'll let you do it. God's wrath against humanity is to give us up to the lust of our hearts, to following after and running after lies. He lets us close our eyes to the truth and trust in our own fantasies and lies. But the story doesn't end there, right? God's mercy and patience towards the same evil humanity that rejects him over and over again God's mercy and patience towards humanity is both unthinkable, why is he doing this, and undeserving. God doesn't punish us or give us what he deserves, but rather he's patient with us. 2 Peter 3 talks about this. If you want to know who God is, listen to how he describes himself here. If you want to know who Jesus Christ is, the God of the Bible is, listen to this. The Lord is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So if you're a Christian here today, and it took you a long time, God was patient with you. If you're here today and you don't believe, you're just, you have questions, you have doubts, or maybe you're really against God and you're just kind of forced to come here today, God is patient towards you. You're still alive. You have believers in your life. Somehow, he got you here today. God is patient with you. And this is his desire. He does not wish any should perish. His desire is that all should reach repentance. But not everyone will. Because we would rather follow the lie 
We would rather follow the lusts of our hearts. 2 Peter 3, 15 ends with, it says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. If you're wondering why Jesus hasn't come back yet, if you're wondering why God just doesn't judge us immediately after we rebel against him, if you're wondering why Acts 14 is not the end of human history and when Jesus comes back and judges and brings a new heaven and a new earth, because he's patient. It's because he wants more to be saved. He's giving you and me and our world more breaths, more time to repent and to turn from worshiping creation to creator. It's grace, right? Back to grace again. And in Paul's brief sermon to those in Lystra, in his focus on common grace, humanity's desire to worship creation rather than creator, and God's continual patience with humanity, In all of this, what Paul is doing, he's contrasting their false, impotent gods, their idols, with the one true living God, Jesus Christ. The one who has a temple in this city. The one whom they think Paul and Barnabas are in the flesh. So what Paul is doing, he's creating an epic showdown between this God that he's talking about and the gods that they believe in. Paul is saying, let the greatest God win. Jesus versus Zeus. And look how he describes the two. And let's decide for ourselves who wins here. Right? He starts off by saying, Jesus also came in the likeness of men. We see that Philippians 2 explicitly. Whereas Zeus visited Lystra in human form. That's about where the comparisons end. And now he begins to contrast Jesus with Zeus. Jesus came to earth to save, whereas Zeus came to earth, came to Lystra to bring judgment and to destroy. Jesus, his temple is the church, whereas Zeus has a temple made by human hands in Lystra. Jesus gave himself as the once and for all sacrifice, whereas Zeus demands continual, ongoing sacrifices. Jesus is resurrected. He's the living God whereas Zeus is dead, powerless, false god. Jesus, his arrival is called good news, whereas when Zeus arrives, everyone's terrified. It's bad news. Jesus is the one who made heaven and earth and everything in it. Zeus didn't. Jesus is patient and kind with all, even those who aren't his his people yet, even those who aren't in his family, even those who don't worship him, whereas Zeus is impatient and maybe will be nice to those who sacrifice to him continually. Jesus gives good gifts to all. Zeus only blesses those who worship him. Jesus brings love. Zeus brings fear. And Jesus always gave witness. He did not hide. Throughout history, God has always given witness, as we saw in our passage today and in Romans 1, and now continues to give witness. He tells his saved, redeemed family Go into all the world and spread this gospel. Whereas Zeus is hidden, he's mysterious, and he's just a local God. Winner? Jesus Christ, the one true God. As we leave here today, three things I want us to take with us, to apply to our lives, to believe, and to remind each other of regularly. The first is just know that the gospel is going to divide. Right? That's tough news. Tough news to stomach. We don't want to believe it. We want to believe that we'll be persuasive enough or that, uh, that the Spirit will move powerfully enough to save everyone who hears the gospel. But sadly, the reality is the gospel will divide. It will divide our families, our neighborhoods, our friendships, our cities, our teens, our coworkers, our classmates. But know that there's hope in it. Know that, as Jesus promised, He will give us a new spiritual family that will replace those who betray us and abandon us and leave us, as well as we will receive eternal life. That this is worth it. The persecution and suffering that we will go through is worth it. It is worth it. And secondly, part of the solution or the answer to that first one is that we're saved into a spiritual family. If you're a Christian here today, the people you're sitting next to who are believers, they're your new family, they are your brothers and sisters. So thank God for it, especially, based on today's passage, especially 
when your biological family lets you down, when your parents just don't get why you love Jesus so much, when your siblings don't understand why you give time and energy and resources to your spiritual family, to your church, when they're not proud of you, when they leave you, when you don't get invited to things anymore, when they're disgusted by you, especially then, thank God that that's not the end, that you're saved into and given a new spiritual family, new spiritual brothers and sisters and mothers and homes, as Jesus promised us. And finally, let creation point you to the creator. We live in an incredible city. It's an incredible time of the year right now with spring turning into summer. We have incredible arts and creativity here in our city as well. So we're surrounded by some of the greatest creation and creativity out there. But let us be warned, just like this this city was warned by Paul and Barnabas, let creation point us to our creator. Let us not worship creation. Let us not only love and be thankful for creation. When you go on a walk or a bike ride or a swim or to a concert or when you see a new baby being born or when you see any type of creation, don't just stop there. Let it move on to something better, what it's supposed to be pointing to. But let us be people that let our, our, our thankfulness, our value of creation point us to worshiping the giver of that, our creator God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the good news we saw in Acts 14. Help us to believe it. Help us to trust in you to know that this goodness comes from you and that grace is a good thing. Help us to believe that even when it's hard. Thank you, Jesus, for the good news, the gospel of grace. Amen.